0: Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's word. Welcome to the Defender Bible Study podcast. Today is Monday, May 1st, 2023. My name is Chris Johnson. I serve as the Vice President of Church Partnerships and Government Affairs for Lifeline Children's Services. A couple of weeks ago, we started a new study walking through the books of 1st and 2 Timothy. Uh, as we have seen, 1 Timothy, it's, it's really the, the first of the pastoral epistles. And, and Paul is writing to Timothy as as he is as uh, Timothy has been a just a Paul has been a mentor to Timothy. He is, has has disciple Timothy and walked with him. And now, uh, he has left him to lead the church at Ephesus. And we know that that Paul had a great affection for the people who made up the the local church there at Ephesus, and he had a great affection for his disciple Timothy. and And so now Paul is leaving Timothy. He's trained him. He's prepared him. And he is leaving him to to lead this church there that, that Paul loves deeply. and And so really, he's going over these these two books, these two letters that he writes to Timothy, he is really pouring out to him and he is training him and kind of uh, giving him instruction. And, and in this, this book of 1 Timothy, we see instruction really concerning the church, um, what the church is to focus on, uh, what is to look like, who's to lead the church, uh, what are their gatherings to look like, what is worship to look like when they, when they come together. And in the beginning of chapter one, Paul really warns against false teachers and kind of addresses that whole uh, issue of, of the wrong people stepping into leadership and teaching and, and leading in ways that are contrary to the gospel. <clears throat> he then lays a a true gospel foundation for this letter. Uh, he lays a gospel foundation for the church that Timothy is leading. And ultimately, he celebrates his own salvation and his own call of God, the call of God on Paul's own life. And, and then even after celebrating what God has done in Paul's life, he, he recognizes Hey, Timothy, God has put the same call on your life. And, and ultimately he's called all of us to the work of the ministry, to serve him and to, uh, to, to, to follow his, his will and his leading and his guiding. And so we get to chapter number two now. And in chapter two, uh, Paul really begins his discussion and his, and his teaching about the, what the church should look like practically what things should be done as a, as a part of their gatherings, as a part of their corporate worship. And his primary teaching deals with the structure of the church, the order of church gatherings. But he's also going to share some things that are completely applicable in the individual lives of the readers, in the individual lives of those who are part of that local expression of the body of Christ. And, and the rally is when, when we gather together in that context of a, of a local church, Um, What we experience together uh, ultimately should just be an overflow of what we've been experiencing individually in our daily lives throughout the week. As we walk with God as Christ followers on a daily basis, when we gather together as the body of Christ— Man, all of that that we've experienced throughout the week, the the speaking with God, the the reading of His Word, the seeing the Holy Spirit live out in our lives, and and all of those things that we have done done individually to worship God throughout the week, it really just becomes an overflow when we gather together and you've got multiple people who have worshiped God and walked with God through the week that then come together to to celebrate the goodness of God, to sing songs of praise, to hear His Word proclaimed. And then as we're going to see today, to, to offer prayers together corporately. Man, it's just a beautiful thing uh, that happens when the the local church gathers for corporate worship. It's so exciting and it's so joyful when we have worshiped individually and then we we come together to celebrate what God has done in our lives. And so with this thinking in mind, with this understanding in mind, Paul begins to instruct Timothy. And really, he starts off with his instruction with the priority of prayer. At the beginning of chapter two, he starts it off by saying, first of all, and, and so this this idea of, first of all, gives, uh, indicates a priority. It, it indicates that that prayer must be given priority in the context of the church. Uh, it indicates the priority that must be given to prayer both in the life of a believer as well as corporately in the local church family. So let's read together chapter number two here of First Timothy, and then we'll uh, break it down a little bit and we'll see what the instruction that Paul gives us. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I love how Paul kind of inserts this parenthetical phrase just to to remind Timothy and remind the readers that uh, of of his apostleship of the fact that he is, uh, that God has called him to this. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse number eight. I desire, then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet." For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul gives some instruction here again around, uh, really this priority of prayer, this priority of prayer. He says there in verse number one, I urge you. I urge that these things be done. And, and the word urge there, it's, it's, it's to me, it means to exhort. It's a, it's a strong encouragement. It's not something that, that Paul says should be taken flippantly, should be taken casually. Uh, it's not something that's optional. Uh, this is a strong encouragement that Paul is giving to Timothy as he is leading out in the church. And we as Christ followers and we as God's people and as the church, we, we must give greater attention to the priority of prayer in our lives and in our corporate gatherings. Jesus himself said in Luke 20, verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of preaching. No, that's not what it says. My house shall be a house of fellowship. Not what it says. My house shall be a house of singing. Not what it says. What was the thing that Jesus himself brought as a priority to the gathering of God's people together. He said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But I wonder, how much priority do we actually give to prayer? How much priority do we give to prayer in our churches? And certainly how much priority do we give to prayer in our individual personal lives? So often we fail to see the importance of, and and ultimately we fail to recognize the, the power of prayer. We see throughout the life of Jesus. We see throughout different stories in scripture. We've witnessed in our own experience, in our own lives. We know that God works according to the prayers of his people. We, we know that God is sovereign we know that god is all-powerful but God in his design in his in his relationship with his with his followers he is somehow put into this working of of the reality of he works according to to prayer the prayers of his people prayers that that are aligned with his will and prayers that are that are aligned with his word and he instructs his people to to boldly approach his throne to ask in faith believing that that God hears our prayers that God answers our prayer. He gives here in in the uh, this this first verse. He mentions four different different words that that all represent prayer and all kind of represent different types. And throughout Scripture, there are even more words that are used to to describe this this idea of conversing with with our God, conversing with the, the God of the universe. He first mentions supplications. And in its simplest form, supplication means petitions. Um, it's, it's it, these, these specific requests for specific needs. And, and, and so we're instructed to, to make our needs known before God, to, to make our requests known to God. He then just mentions the word prayers and, and this is in its simplest form. It's an act of worship. It's, it's calling out to God. It's, it, it's lifting our hearts before the Lord. It's, it's recognizing that, that we don't have the power to make things happen, but we serve a God who does have that power it's an act of worship saying, God, I'm not worthy, but you are. You're worthy of my needs. You're worthy of my situations. You're worthy of my uh, questions. You're the answer to my questions and and to my fears and my doubts. And so it's this act of worship of of recognizing who God is and calling out to him for strength, for guidance, for provision. He then uses the word intercessions. Intercessions, when you when you dig into the the meaning of this word, it it indicates a closeness. It indicates a an intimacy, and and ultimately it's it's a it's a friendship relationship that 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 also is, sees the uh, the availability of, of making requests on behalf of others, and it's 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 viewing God as as. Uh, in personal relationship where you can not only lift up supplications for your specific needs and not only pray as an act of worship, but but you also can lift up the request and and needs of others and 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 make those needs known to your to your friend. God who is your friend. Then he closes out with thanksgivings. And, and of course thanksgivings are just expressions of gratitude. And oh, so how often do we approach God in times of prayer and all we do is just ask for stuff. All we do is just tell God what we want and what we need. And God certainly wants us to do that. But man, how, how powerful it is. And how does it speak to relationship when, when we also give thanks for what God has done? When we enter into his presence with a, with a spirit of gratitude, with a spirit of, of appreciation, with a spirit of thanksgiving and praise for the work that he has done, he has accomplished in our lives. This is how our prayer should look. Our prayers both individually and our prayers corporately, when we gather together, should include supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. So as we walk through and we see the, the priority of prayer, we then have to ask the question, for whom are we praying? For whom are we to pray? The who of, of prayer. Verses one through four kind of show us who we should be praying for. And ultimately, it tells us that we are to pray for everyone. We're to pray for those who are good. We're to pray for those who are bad. We're to pray for those who are kind and pray for those who are cruel. We're to pray for all all nationalities, all, all ethnicities. There, there's no uh, singling out of anyone that we should or shouldn't. Really, we should, we should pray for everyone. Those, those we look like, those we don't look like, those we agree with, those we don't agree with. He specifically mentions here in this text, in this passage, he specifically mentions those who are in a place of authority. And really, both these admonitions would have had would have had special meaning to the readers of this. These readers, those who would have been reading, those who made up the church at Ephesus, they were they were there was still a great deal of conflict in their lives, conflict for both Jews and for Greek believers. You see, Christ followers were being persecuted. The the Jewish believers they were being persecuted by by the religious around them who thought that they had abandoned their their Jewish heritage and Jewish faith. The Gentile believers they were being persecuted by their families and friends who had had completely lived completely contrary to the ways of God and and they view now viewed their their these these Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ as being counterculture to who they were. Those in authority they were greatly persecuting Christians um, during this time. The the Roman Emperor was Nero, who was known to to be one of the most horrific persecutors of Christians who really have ever lived. It was said that. That Nero so despised and hated Christians and so persecuted Christians that that he would line the, the streets to his palace as, as people would come for parties and celebration. He would he would line the streets with torches that literally were Christians that he would set on fire. So that's the kind of leader that Paul is instructing Timothy to instruct his people to pray for. So there's the biblical admonition to pray for all we've gotta, we've got to pray for those in authority even when we disagree with them even when, when when they would seek to do us harm we we pray for those who seem to be religious but are acting in a way that is that is contrary to the ways of God. and so we lift up those around us we lift up those uh, around the seas we lift up those in leadership and we are called to pray for them. Not only do we see the who but but next we see the what? What is it that we're to pray for for these folks? What are we specifically supposed to pray? Ultimately, we're told here in this passage that we're to pray for their salvation. We're to pray for them to, to come to know the Lord and to be saved. I wonder, we must ask ourselves, do we really have a burden to see lost people come to know the Lord? The truth is, every person that we meet, or even every person that we know about, and those that we'll never meet, every individual will spend eternity in either heaven or in hell. And if we truly believe that God hears and God answers our prayers, then why in the world are we not praying, praying more for the salvation of the lost? Why are we not lifting up those who are away from God and, and calling out and praying for them to be saved? This must be our prayer for, for orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. We must pray for, for women who find themselves in crisis pregnancies. We must pray for broken families. We must pray that they will be saved, that they will come to know the healing and restoration that only comes from a right relationship with Jesus Christ. This must also, it must be our prayer for our our government leaders. We think of of executive leadership, presidents, governors, mayors, city councils, boards uh, around us. And we must pray for those leaders that, that they would come to know the Lord. We think of legislative leaders, both federal and state senators, representatives, Pray that they would come to know the Lord, that decisions they make would flow out of a relationship with Christ. Pray for the judiciary, those Supreme Court, federal, state, local judges. Ultimately, pray for all of those who are in positions of leadership, Uh, That would include activists, community organizers, others that that are in places of influence. We must pray that they would be saved and come to know the Lord. We must pray this for the leaders of our communities and our nations, but but also we must pray it for the leaders of other places as well, including those who seem to be our enemies, including those who who seek to harm us and and those who, who don't believe like us. We must pray for all folks, pray for their salvation. And then the why. Why is it important that we pray for their salvation? He goes on to give us a few different reasons here, four different reasons why we should pray for everyone and pray for them to be saved. First of all, he says, because it's good and pleasing in God's sight. It's good and pleasing in God's sight. He says that in verse number three, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. It pleases God when we pray for others. It shows our obedience to God, to his command to pray. It shows our dependence upon him, that that we don't have the answer, that we can't fix this, that we can't save anyone. It shows our dependence upon God and ultimately our faith in God when we pray. And really, if there was no other motivation given, this is all the motivation that we need. The fact that it is pleasing and it is good to God ought to be motivation enough for us to spend the time and spend the energy in praying for the salvation of others. But he gives us another reason. He also says that that life is better when leaders are saved. Life is better when leaders are saved. He tells us to pray for the salvation of kings and those in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Again, this would have, have been strong motivation to those who were reading this letter there at Ephesus. They were living during this time. They knew the, uh, the the ramifications. If their leaders would come to know the Lord in salvation, it would completely have changed their situation. He speaks here of, of peaceful life, and peaceful here deals with internal rest and calmness an internal peace that comes from following leaders who know the Lord. But then he also says a quiet life that deals with the external situations. You see, when, when leaders truly know the Lord, then they act and they move in ways that honor him and that, that create situations that are just and that are righteous. We throughout scripture, the prophets spoke regularly of the blessings of living under leaders who lead well. Proverbs has multiple occasions where it speaks about the blessings of being under good leadership. And so we pray for the salvation of those in authority because life is better when those in authority are saved and are following Christ. Another reason that he gives that we should pray for the salvation of all people is because God desires for all to be saved. It's the heart of God for people to come to him in saving faith in Jesus Christ. God's heart and God's desire is for all to come to faith in him through Christ. Verse four, he desires that all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter expressed the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when he said the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. They, they, were, they were frustrated because God's return had not happened quicker, and, and they were ready to go and, and, and for Christ to set up His, uh, His kingdom here. But Peter was telling them, hey, it's not that the Lord is not keeping His word. It's not that the Lord is just a procrastinator, but He is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's God's desire and God's heart that all would come to saving faith in him. Now, now we know the reality is that not all will come to faith. Not all will choose salvation. Not all are called to salvation. But we do know, we, we don't know who is and who's not. And so we have the responsibility and we are commanded and told that we are to call out to God on behalf of all those who are lost. And we know that when we pray for the salvation of all people, that that prayer is in alignment with the heart of God. And we can be confident that God desires for people to be saved. Therefore, we should pray. We should call out to him and ask that people be saved. The next reason that he gives why we should pray is because when people are saved, God is glorified. When people are saved, God is glorified. You look at verses 5 through 7, and he speaks to the fact that, that there's one God, and, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and, and this mediator, Christ Jesus, he gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself at the right time. And, and Paul says, I'm appointed to preach this, and, and you're appointed to preach this, and we're to teach in faith and truth. And so every time a person is saved, it is a testimony to this work of Christ It is a testimony, and and when people come to faith in Christ, it points to the glorious gospel, to this this good news. And and we as his followers, we must regularly pray that that people would understand that. And then not only should we pray, but we must also continue to proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ. We must pray that, that hearts will be softened to the message of salvation and that people would come to faith. We just recently celebrated the resurrection on Easter Sunday and, and the Sunday following Easter Sunday at the church where I attend here in, in Birmingham, we had a, a man who's in his eighties who was baptized that week. And as his testimony was shared there in the service, we found out that he had come to faith that very week, right there between Easter and this next Sunday. And we found out that this salvation occurred because this man's wife, had faithfully prayed for his salvation for over 53 years. For over 53 years, she had prayed that her husband would be saved. So many times when we don't see it happen immediately, when we don't see things at work, we give up and we quit and we stop praying. But God has said, hey, keep praying, keep praying for the salvation of others. Because when people do come to faith in Christ, when we pray and lift those individuals up, when people are saved, God is glorified. The gospel is proclaimed. What a privilege it is to pray for others. But then in the last part of this chapter, he gets to the how. What is to be our posture? What's what's to be our attitude in prayer? Paul says that in light of this command to pray, There should be certain attitudes that are maintained. Ultimately, we must seek to keep our lives clean when we approach the throne of God in prayer. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. When we hold on to sin in our life and we come to Him without confessing sin and making things right, then we hinder the prayers of God from being at work in our life. And so he addresses here both men and women, and he calls out certain attitudes and certain postures that should be prevalent in their prayer lives. First of all, for men, he admonishes us to, to pray with, with holy hands, uh, without anger and quarreling. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Holy hands here are speaking of really just a clean heart, a clean life before the Lord. We ought to approach God's throne with a cleanness of heart, with a cleanness of attitude and cleanness of of deeds, the way that we live. James chapter four, James is addressing the the context of of answered prayer and what it means to have our prayers answered. And in that context, in in verse number eight of James four, he says, draw nigh to God and he will draw near to you. But to draw nigh to God, he then says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We can't approach God with dirty, sinful hands and, and impure motivations and hearts. And we've got to come to him with surrender. We got to come to him in obedience and, and with confession of sin so that we can come to him with clean hands and pure hearts. He also says here in first Timothy two that, that we ought to pray with, without anger or quarreling. And the clean, holy hands deals with our relationship before God without anger and quarreling is addressing our relationship with our fellow man. And so he says, when we come in prayer, we need to come with being right with fellow men, especially in this context, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus himself addressed this in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 23 and 24. He said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming to pray before the Lord, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, we, we must be right with God and we, we must be right with men. And when we're right with God and we're right with men, then we can expect God to hear our prayers and God to answer our prayers. Paul then turns his attention to the admonition of women regarding two specific things that he draws out here in this first Timothy chapter two, in these last few verses, he speaks to the motives, the motivation behind prayer and behind uh, worship. And then also he speaks about the submission to God's design. First of all, in verses 9 and 10, he deals with the motivation behind our gathering, the motivation behind our prayers. He says, likewise, also, that that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You've got to understand, again, the cultural context here. Ephesian women, women in, in, in Ephesus here, the tendency was for them to adorn themselves in such a way that would draw attention to their beauty, that would also draw attention to their wealth. And so there were women who were coming into the gathering of the church and they were dressing in such a way and fixing their hair in such a way and wearing jewelry in such a way that they were seeking to draw attention to themselves, draw attention to their physical beauty, draw attention to their wealth and what they had in way of wealthiness. And Instead, Paul is saying, hey, we ought to live contrary to that, Paul says when we gather, when we come together for prayer, that we we ought to practice modesty. We ought to practice self-control. The word modesty here, it literally means orderliness. It means appropriateness. So he is saying here to women, don't dress in such a way. Don't present yourself in such a way that draws the wrong kind of attention to you or causes distraction in the church. Now, he's not saying to women today, don't dress nice. That you shouldn't look nice, that you shouldn't wear jewelry, that you shouldn't wear nice clothes, or you shouldn't do your hair when you come together and worship, or you go to the Lord in prayer. That's not what Paul's saying. But what he's addressing here ultimately is the motivation of the heart. Are you dressing the way that you're dressing? Are you presenting yourself the way you're presenting yourself so that you can draw attention to yourself? Are you humbly coming into the gathering and and yes, looking your best for the Lord and yes, looking your best in a respectful way, but but also an appropriate way? Are you trying to be the focus and the center of attention, or do you seek to put the attention on God, the one who answers? Here is an answer's prayer. In verse number ten, there he addresses godliness and good works; those things are emphasized. And so, what Paul is, is really saying here is is that it's what's on the inside that matters. It's what is lived out that's most important, way more important than flashiness on the outside, way more important than distracting from others, or way more important than what appears to be in conflict with a pure heart. So we must pray with the right motives. But then also he admonishes women to pray with submission to God's design. Paul here encourages women to to have the right attitude regarding God's design for the roles of men and women. And there are certain roles that God designs to be played out. And this same design is from creation. And Paul even addresses the, the roles there in creation. The same design Paul talks about in the, in the context of marriage. God, in his wisdom, made men and women equal in dignity and worth. There is no difference in the value of men. Men are no more valuable or more worthy than women. We both are equal in dignity and value and worth. But God also created us distinct. God created us different. We are distinct in our roles and how we function on the earth, how we function and carry out our callings within the body of Christ, within the, the context of the local church. Paul here is focusing on the role of women within the church. And again, it's important to know the context in which he was writing, the setting of this original writing. You see, historically before this time, women really had no place in worship. They couldn't be involved in the gathering of people together for worship in significant ways. They they only had very insignificant roles that could be played. But now with this New Testament and this new mystery being revealed of the church, they have found this new freedom that, that they're enjoying. But there were some in the church here at Ephesus who, who really had just kind of swung the pendulum completely the other direction. And they were, they were enjoying their newfound freedom, but they also were trying to take on roles that were, that were not appropriate and that, that were not designed to be held by women. And so Paul is not saying that women can't contribute to the greatly to the work of the Lord. He's not saying that women can't teach and, and that they are just to be quiet and mother at church and not have any place and not have any, any role in ministry. In verse 12, he's clearly addressing the role of elder leadership within the church. When he says, I don't permit women to teach, the to teach part there would really be better translated to be a teacher. And it's ultimately speaking of the primary teacher, that role of primary teacher that leads the church in authority as an elder or pastor. And so Paul's instruction here is that women not fulfill the role of eldership and the primary leader, preacher, teacher in the church, but that they would fulfill God's calling in their lives under submission to the servant leadership of the elders of the church. In the next chapter, he's going to very clearly lay out the guidelines for church leadership, and he's going to speak of the qualifications of the elder. And so he's saying here that that women are to understand their role, and they're not to usurp the authority over the elder leadership of the church, but instead they're to fulfill their callings. They are to teach. They are to serve. They are to disciple. They are to pray. They are to lead out. But they do so recognizing their role and under the leadership, the servant leadership of the elders of the church. Ultimately, Paul, throughout his writings, he celebrates the role of women in the body of Christ. He encourages them, though, to recognize God's design. He even ends this chapter speaking of the beauty and the blessings that come from women understanding their role and design. So as we look at this chapter, as we wrap this chapter up today, what a tremendous privilege we have to pray, but also what a great responsibility it is to lift up the needs of others. God has promised that every nation and every tongue will have representation around his throne. And this will become a reality as we, as his people, as we pray for the nations, as we pray for the lost among us, God will hear and God will answer our prayers. As we focus on the importance of prayer in our personal lives, in our corporate church, corporate lives, may we also stay clean before the Lord, stay right with others. May we recognize the right, have the heart right heart motivations. And may we fulfill our roles with humility and appreciation for God's design. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together now as we conclude our time. And we ask this week that you pray for just kind of the HR department here at Lifeline and, and for our leadership as we seek to build out and support our staff as we answer God's call to equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to vulnerable children. So we join you together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we do love you and we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us principles and guidelines and guardrails and you call us to, to walk in a way that brings you glory and honor and that, uh, Lord, that that fulfills your call upon your church and upon your people. Lord, as we think about this important uh admonition to, to make prayer a priority in our lives, God, may that be the case. Lord, we pray and we lift up those who are around the world who do not know you. We pray for leaders, both of our Communities and our states and our nation and ultimately, God, of leaders around the world of, of, of good nations, of bad nations, of our enemies and our allies. God, we pray that you would bring lost people to yourself, that we would lift high Christ and that, that you would draw men to yourself and that you would save men and women by your grace, by your goodness, by your mercy. God, we pray it. Lord, keep our hearts pure. Keep our motivations right. Keep us in submission to your design and your plans. And Lord, may you use us to bring about the prayers, the salvations of, uh, of, of others. God, we pray specifically for the ministry of Lifeline today. And Lord, we thank you for our team that you have assembled. And we pray and lift up, Lord, the open positions and the needs that our ministry has to have people that will fill some of the different roles that are necessary. We pray for our HR team as they seek to assimilate new staff and support the staff that's on the ground serving every day. And uh, we pray that you would lead this team, that you would encourage this team, that you would uh, help them see their worth and value in the big picture of uh, the mission of our ministry. Uh, God, we pray that you would just give us greater influence, greater opportunities, uh, Lord, to preach and proclaim the good news, and specifically, Lord, to equip your people to, to preach and proclaim this good news, Lord, in the lives of the vulnerable. We thank you, God, for this privilege you've given us to serve you. We thank you for the call that you have on each of our lives. May we walk in obedience and faithfulness to the commands of your word. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise, honor, and glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.